and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland and I'm so excited to be here with you. I don't know how the weather is by you, but in the Midwest, we've had relentless hot and dry temperatures for months now. Between the sun and the humidity, I've only been going outside in the early morning or later at night to just water the garden and maybe read for a short while. Mostly, I've been trying to beat the heat indoors, and I've been spending some time redecorating and switching my quilts around to freshen my space. Usually, my quilts in summer don't get too much use since we're not needing them for keeping warm or, you know, snuggling. So the quilts I pull out in summer are for display. And that means my table runners and wall quilts finally get time to shine. For the longest time, I avoided hanging quilts because I was so intimidated by the process. Like, what if I put permanent holes in my wall, or the quilt doesn't hang correctly, or I don't love the hanging method I choose? So today, I wanted to share some fun tips for hanging quilts in your space. Our staff came up with some creative and simple ways to hang quilts, so we hope they inspire you to try one in your own space. First, let's talk about planning for a wall quilt. Wall quilts are like works of art. They need to be displayed properly and given space for those to admire it. And although you could just, you know, willy-nilly hang a quilt on a wall anywhere, it will have the greatest impact and visual aesthetic if you keep in mind the space it's in and what's around it. So for instance, if you're hanging a quilt above a piece of furniture, like a mantle, a dresser, or a skinny table in your entry, your quilt will play a part in the overall decor. So the quilt will look best with small matching decor items stacked on the furniture to create a little vignette. Things like books, photos, vases with flowers, and other little knickknacks can create a gorgeous space to extend your home's decor and colors and the vibe. On the other hand, if you're hanging a quilt to fill empty wall space, like in a living room, a bedroom, hallway, or even a staircase, the quilt will be a standout in that space and really draw your eye to it. In this case, you want to make sure to hang it evenly and give it equal space around the quilt between any windows, walls, ceilings, or other large furniture. For example, when I hung a quilt in my living room, I made sure that it was equally spaced from the ceiling and the wall and was hung at the same height as my door frame so nothing looked out of place. You may also want to consider how often you'll switch the quilt out. If you plan to switch the quilts out seasonally, think about how the space will look if you need to hang a larger or smaller quilt than the one that's hanging now. Will it still look okay? Especially if the wall quilt is getting a lot of sun exposure during the day, 
you'll want to switch it out every few months to avoid damage and fading. So think through all your size needs before making permanent holes in your wall. And of course, many people like to make a gallery wall of their smaller quilts to hang in their sewing space or somewhere else in their home to show off all their work. And if you plan to do that, make sure you have enough room to expand as you make more. So start hanging your quilts at eye level and then move up, down, and out as you have more minis in your collection. Now, let's talk about some of the easiest methods for hanging a quilt. These require no hanging sleeves and no permanent fixtures on your wall. A timeless classic is using command strips, which work well if your quilt is small. The Velcro command strips can be pinned to the back of your quilt and then attached to the other half of the strip that sticks to your wall. It's easy to switch out and take off when you're ready to switch things. Another option is if you have a metal object you'd like to hang a quilt on, such as a metal front door. Um, maybe a piece of furniture with metal accents or even a metal floating shelf. You can use magnetic clips. You can clip them to the corners of your quilt and then attach them to the metal. This is one of my favorite methods to hang small quilts um, and I even hang like garlands and stockings this way during the holidays since my furniture has metal barn door accents. If you're not a fan of adding hanging sleeves, but are okay putting nails or screws in your wall, try hanging quilts using bulldog clips or gallery wall clips. You can add two or three to your wall with nails and then simply uh, clip your quilts into them. These are a fun option because you can find clips in a variety of colors, styles, and finishes to match your decor. You can also sandwich a small quilt between a poster hanger. Just be sure to find a hanger with screws instead of one with magnets since a quilt is thicker than a poster and the magnets might not be strong enough. Many quilting hanging clamps also use a small screw or nail system for hanging. Now let's talk about hanging sleeves. Hanging sleeves are a great way to hang quilts because it makes the hanger invisible behind the quilt. So the quilt looks like it's floating on the wall. And it also prevents drooping. So hanging sleeves are essentially a pocket on the back top of your quilt that can hold a dowel or a rod for hanging. If it's a smaller quilt, you can get away with just small triangle pockets in the corner, but a larger quilt will need a sleeve across the entire quilt. They are an extra step in the process and they take a little more time and fabric, but it's definitely worth it to achieve a beautifully hung quilt. We have a video showing how to make the two types of hanging sleeves on our website, so visit our show notes for a link to the video. A hanging sleeve gives you different options for hanging your quilt. So you can use the decorative wire hangers, which work great for small quilts, and many times these wire hangers are themed or seasonal, so they're fun to switch out to showcase different quilts or highlight different occasions. You can go with a classic rod or dowel. Uh, many that you find online come with wall brackets and instructions for hanging. You can also use a curtain rod. 
going to slide the rod through the hanging sleeve or even use curtain clips to hang the quilt. And you can still use command strips on your wall to hold the rod if you don't want to make permanent holes. So we're so excited to share all these tips because this week's Sweet Quilty Home Challenge is to hang a quilt. For those who don't know, our Sweet Quilty Home Challenge is something we started last summer when we were all quarantining as a way to brighten our homes and sewing spaces. And it was so popular. So we're bringing it back again this year. So this challenge lasts 10 weeks this summer. It started July 5th and it goes through September 12th. And each week we issue a challenge on our podcast and our social media pages. Just one small step you can take throughout the week to make your space more beautiful and functional. If you want to participate, you can use the hashtag SweetQuiltyHome on Instagram. And you can also visit our show notes for a link to the Sweet Quilty Home page on our website. We'll list details of each week's challenge and a lot of helpful content like videos and patterns to get you all started. And all of our podcast episodes during these 10 weeks coordinate with the week's challenge, so keep listening in. We're going to take a quick ad break, but hang tight. When we come back, we're chatting with a talented textile artist, Aaron Sanders Head. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. I'm now handing the mic over to Elizabeth Stumbo, our art director of American Patchwork and Quilting, for her chat with the talented Erin Sanders Head. Erin is a textile artist, natural fabric dyer, quilter, teacher, and he owns a studio and shop in Greensboro, Alabama. He has a fascinating journey into the quilting world and makes the most gorgeous and intentional creations inspired by the nature around him. Enjoy their talk. I'm here today to welcome Erin to our podcast. Thank you so much for being on the American Patrick and Quilting podcast this morning. I am just so thrilled to have you as a guest today and to just be chatting all things quilting with you. Thank you so much for make, having me be a part of this. I'm so excited. Yeah. And so, well, I was first introduced to your work when we featured you in our recent August issue of American Patchwork and Quilting. Um, and you were one of five makers that we profiled. And I was just blown away by your creativity and just your passion for using natural materials to hand dye fabric. And it was just something I really hadn't stumbled across before. Um, so for our listeners that maybe are new to you also and have maybe haven't seen the profile, let's just start out by sharing a little bit about yourself and um, a little bit about your background and how your passion for quilting and fabric dyeing started. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to say thank you for having me be a part of that, those profiles. I thought it was such a, an amazing group of people that you all chose, such varied people. And it was really, it was, it was special to be a part of that. So I appreciate that. Um, but I, yeah, so I'm Aaron. I'm from Alabama. Um, I live in Alabama right now in Greensboro, Alabama, and I'm also from a, a separate a separate city in Alabama. And 
So growing up, I always sort of had textiles around me from my, my mother and my grandmother were both um, explore different textile techniques, be it, you know, tatting or quilting or crocheting and sort of combinations therein. So I always kind of had textiles around me and I had the vernacular and the tools and kind of familiarity with them. And then once I discovered um, hand stitching or handwork and um, natural dyeing, I kind of found my footing within that within that tradition. So now everything I do, it's either some kind of combination of plant-based dyes and hand stitching either separately or some mixture of those things. That and most, most things are either um, from forage from around uh, where I live or grown in the dye garden. So it's a true kind of picture of like local, local color. Yeah. So would you say that you're mostly self-taught or have you like read a bunch about it in the past or just is it all just kind of experimental? So for natural dyeing, my, my first um, introduction to that was a workshop with indigo dyeing. And so I had some training when it came to doing that. And then the rest of it was a lot of, um, I had friends who were um, natural dyers who I was able to sort of cull information from and, um, but mostly self-taught except for that kind of first self-taught and I guess friend taught as well. Uh, not, not a traditional academic setting. And then when it comes to quilting, I am mostly self-taught and then a lot of questions to my mom frequently <laughs> about, <laughs> about how to make things match up, how to do things, but what is this block called? Stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, am frequently calling my mother to ask about quilting advice. So yeah, it's wonderful thank to have that, that resource there. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank goodness for mothers. <laughs> I know, I know. So good. All right, so can you um, just share a little bit more about the process for, about foraging? Like how, how do you go about finding those natural materials and knowing which ones are gonna work for you? And, and do you also keep a, a record of your successes and failures? Yeah, so um, the first step is, I think the really important thing for people who are interested in getting involved in dyeing, especially forage dyeing, is to really familiarize yourself with just what local plants are in your area, what your climate's like and what, what's native there, what grows there. And once you can kind of identify things more easily, and then you can kind of get into the meat of if they're a good dye garden or if they're a good dye plant or if they're not such a good dye plant and stuff like that. Um, so usually that's the first step is, is um, finding something. So I have sort of seasonal things that I look for. Um, I look for, like right now I'm, I'm starting to forage for sumac and I'll get goldenrod soon. And so I kind of have like a mental calendar kind of to know what to look for on the sides of the roads and stuff like that during the year. And um, so it can be foraging it and using it immediately. It could be foraging it and saving it for using in the winter or there's different kind of avenues that it can take um, from there. But I love foraging and, and growing my own dye stuff because I love artwork that's about um, place and about environment and about sort of where someone's from, where someone lives. And, and it's a really amazing ability to, to be able to just take things from your surroundings and then really imbue your fabric with that location. And that's, that's the main, one of the main attractive things about, about plant-based dyeing for me. Do you feel that um, you are more connected to nature and the earth and your surroundings through uh, all of this natural dyeing also? 100%. I think that you're so much more perceptive of the things around you. And it also makes you just observe your surroundings differently. You, th you, you instead of seeing it as just like um, side of the road or like a field, you see it as this sort of like giver of beauty and this, 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 the source for potential like color. And, you, and so you start appreciating and you start respecting your environment, I think a lot more once you see it kind of that way. Oh, I love that. I, there's so many things in plants. Like I am not a great gardener, but I, I have aspirations. Sure, but yeah. I, I love that um that idea of like 
finding things and seeing if they work and yeah. maybe something that I would maybe identify as a weed may be something amazing. So, yeah, yeah, I think everyone has like a plant and I think once they find that plant and, the, and then they grow it successfully or they forge it and then they feel like they had their foot in the door for gardening. So I think that you're not a bad gardener. You just haven't found your plant yet. <laughs> Right. Or um, maybe I just show them a little too much love with overwatering. <laughs> yeah, also totally true. <laughs> yeah. So do you also have a pretty big garden that you keep um, supplied and growing with you know, some of your favorites? Yeah, we do. We, um, I grow about, um, I think this year we have about 14 different kinds of plants, um, mostly die, mostly dye plants and also some just cut flowers and just some pretty things that I like to have around. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main ones I grow are indigo. Um, that's sort of the first one that I started growing and, uh, marigolds are really easy to grow and a wonderful dye plant. Um, cosmos, um, there's like scabiosa, there's all kinds of, diff- um, flowers that you can just grow for beautiful cut flowers that you can also use for dyeing once they're, once they're dried too. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of a combination of things from the back, the backyard garden and then things from um, forage places as well. Are the plants you mentioned when they're dried, so you can like enjoy them when they're, they're fresh and then mm-hmm. you can also use them when they're dried. Are they more potent when they're dried or so is that not really make a difference? Typically they're more potent when they're fresh. So you may have to increase your kind of amount of dye stuff once they're dry, um, but, they, but they work wonderfully. I usually make, um, like marigold chains out of them because it's really mm-hmm. easy to dry them that way. And so I just have like marigold chains hanging all around and you can just pull a chain down and put it into your dye pot and then you're ready to go once you're oh, ready yeah. to start dyeing with it. So, um, and you have I'm, like a built-in decoration. Yeah, I was gonna say, I love finding ways of making them like sculptural objects and like pretty in the meantime too. So it's not just um, something drying on a shelf. It's not something that's like hanging on the wall or, you know, interesting things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds amazing. Um, so I know you travel around a little bit too. Um, are there, are there opportunities when you travel to do some foraging for things that might not be present there in Alabama, or do you have like this destination goal in your mind that someday you'd love to go and forage there? I mean, I love looking for other things when I'm, when I'm elsewhere, because I mean, it gets really hot in Alabama. And so we can grow a lot of things here. It's, it's really great soil. We can grow things pretty easily, but there's some things that, you know, it just gets too hot for. So if I'm in like, <clears throat> like Tennessee or North Carolina, like a, a place that's a little bit cooler. I can sometimes snag some things that I couldn't get normally here. And so it's a whole other way also of um, it's like a souvenir. You know, you, you, mm. you come home and you have this like collection of things in the backseat of your car. And it's like a, instead of a t-shirt or a coffee mug, you have this like a bunch of flowers in the backseat instead. So yeah. Um, yeah, I love, I love, it's like a, it's like a lens to look at like a new place through. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a fun way to explore, I imagine too. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So I read in your profile also that you've gotten to know some of the local road crews. That sounds interesting. Um, how, how does that work? <laughs> well, so I love um, dying with Queen Anne's Lace and Goldenrod, which are really common, just roadside plants. Um, so there's like a sweet spot where they get really big and tall and they're perfect for dying wood. And there's like a week or so before they get cut down by the road crews. And so I was just out one day and I was, <clears throat> I was foraging some and I saw them sort of coming up behind me to cut the cut them all so I just went back and I talked to them and I was like is it okay if I just like force before you get them they're like oh yeah sure and they, I think they thought I was a little bit crazy but <laughs> I found that typically when you just ask someone like that I'll ask people for things like they're like on their property sometimes that they obviously aren't using and I find for the most part people are just so fascinated by what you're going to do with them that they're totally willing to let you to work around you or to let you kind of work with them in different ways yeah, I bet they're really meeting people too. Like, it, there's people like there's wood. There's kinds of wood that you can die with. Um, 
like Osage wood and, and different things like that. And so I've been able to meet like woodworkers who would say wood chips for sawdust for me. And so you can really um, find interesting relationships through, through dyeing that way. Yeah, that sounds great. Would you say that there, that you're seeing a resurgence maybe in people's interest in natural dyeing, or I know some of these traditions like Shibori have been around for, for centuries and has such a rich history. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you see kind of people getting more interested in these kind of things? Oh, definitely. And I think especially in the past year, there was, there was a huge resurgence in interest in gardening, especially. Um, everyone was at home and sort of wanted to like, you know, foster this like environment around them. And so um, there's been a lot of resurgence of like dye gardening. So people wanting to grow things specifically. Um, but yeah, I think that people are more and more interested in um, one of the coolest things about dyeing is that like my naturally dyed fabric won't look like your naturally dyed fabric. It'll all be different, different looking. And so I think people really like the idea of making something that's completely unique to them. And um, I think that dyeing is one of the easiest ways of of doing that and achieving that sort of look. And so I think that's maybe one of the reasons why people, why it's so popular. I think people also want to um, lessen their impact, you know, environmentally, and they're able to do that with natural dyes and in a more sort of holistic way they feel good about. So I'm hoping that it just keeps increasing in popularity as, as, we, as we go. <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. Um, yeah. For those of us that are listening that, you know, perhaps are our very first or maybe only foray into dyeing fabrics is tie dyeing a t-shirt at summer camp sure. growing up, um, myself included. What, um, what are some tips or resources we can use to get started? Or is there anything we need to know if we were to maybe not even dye our own fabrics, but maybe just quilt with them? Is there anything we should be aware of that we're, we should I definitely I encourage people like the first step I always tell people to do, especially if they're interested in, in dyeing specifically, is to familiarize yourself with their surroundings. So find some like gardening group or some like, you know, Facebook group for plant identification in their area. So once you kind of learn those things, then you can read books and if books mention certain plants, you know, you can pull from those from right around you. Um, there are certain things that are really important with natural dyeing. There's a process called mordanting, which is like a pre-treatment um, to help dye bind to fiber. And that's one of the most important steps. It really ensures, you know, long lasting vivid color. And for quilts, you know, quilts are gonna be around for forever after you make them, hopefully, you know, they last for so long that you really wanna make sure that, um, you know, this beautiful yellow quilt doesn't turn into a, a, a kind of like a light beige quilt after a while. You wanna make sure it kind of lasts. And so, um, I encourage people to do to either take a workshop from someone or find some resource, some book, because um, you do want to make sure that you're not just, um, I mean, I think that it's, I think it's okay to also make colors that don't last forever. I think it's a fun experience, but I think if you're going for a quilt or for them, it's going to be on a wall or in an art show or in someone's home. I think it's important to make sure it's going to last as long as possible. So um, I do think it's important to kind of get a good, a good basic uh, kind of knowledge of that process down for sure. Hey, it's Lindsay. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but we need to take a quick ad break. We'll be back soon with more from Erin. So let's switch gears a little bit here. So um, in addition to being a talented textile artist, you also are a teacher. Um, mm -hmm. So, and you offer a lot, you were just mentioning, you know, people being interested, trying out a workspace or a workshop. Um, and I know that you offer online and in-person workshops. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about those classes? Sure. Um, when, I, when I first started teaching, just because someone asked me if I wanted to, to teach, and this was, I guess, like six years or so ago. And um, I was like, sure, I guess we'll just see what happens. And, you know, 
people really liked it a lot. And so it just sort of snowballed from there a little bit. Um, but yeah, so I teach, I mean, in the past year, or obviously things went very online and it was really fun because um, a lot of barriers were removed for people, like people who couldn't travel to places or people who just couldn't, couldn't get to where I was. It was fun to engage with people from all, from all over. Um, so that's been really great. But there also obviously is a wonderful component to doing it in person too. It's nice to be in a room with people kind of doing the same thing. Um, but everything I, I teach from everything from, you know, indigo dyeing and resist techniques to natural dyeing to um, quilt making and hand stitching. Um, my favorite probably is I love teaching indigo dyeing because um, when you first pull, everyone knows indigo is beautiful, um, deep blue color. When you first pull it from the indigo vet, it's this kind of green color. And as it hits the oxygen, it's called oxidizing. It slowly turns blue. And so you feel like you have this kind of like magic potion in front of you. And so it always like makes people turn back into like kindergartners. They're like, they get so giddy and excited about watching that happen. And that never really gets old. I love, I love seeing people kind of unlock in their minds a little bit that way. Um, and I think also there's, um, it's fun to teach because people come with all their different um, lives already. And so a painter might come and want to dye canvas to paint on, or a quilter comes and wants to dye painting or fabric to quilt with, or um, a clothing designer wants to dye fabric to make clothing out of. So you can really make these processes fit into your life, however, however it makes the most sense for you. And I love that textiles can be so like adaptable in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a great community. I love seeing what people do with the fabrics they make and create from. And um, yeah, that's so amazing. So um, so in addition to, you know, having these workshops and stuff too, you've also opened up a studio space there in Greensboro. Um, mm -hmm. Can you describe that space a little bit for our listeners? So what would like the experience be like when we walk in the door? Yeah, so it's in an old um, auto parts store in downtown. So it's, it's, like an, it's like an historic storefront with big picture windows in the front. So very light filled when you walk in. And um, it's a very, it's almost like a laboratory in here. So you can kind of see what I've been working on. You'll see stuff hanging on the wall. It's kind of in process or um, that I'm kind of experimenting with. There's also a small kind of market space in the front for um, regional artists to sell their work to kind of create more of a creative economy in the region. And there's also a gallery space. So there's rotating exhibitions periodically um, that you can see and there, there could be quilt shows or paint or it could be any kind of medium. Uh, and then my studio is here as well. So um, you can really see quite a few different kind of aspects of, of this space. And it's a flexible space too. So sometimes it'll be more of a shop, sometimes more of a gallery. It, it kind of, it, it can change to be like a pop-up for somebody else. It's a, it's a flexible space that I want it to be flexible so it can meet, you know, the needs of whatever is going on at that, at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like there's a lot going on in your life. A lot of fun yeah, things a lot happening. Of all the time. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a typical day? What would a typical day look like for you? Um, so the one kind of constant is that I, I hand stitch every day for at least an hour. It's just oh. something that I do every day, usually in the morning, sometimes at night. And it can be just stitching a pattern. It could be quilt, hand quilting, it could be mending, but I find that it's important that I have one thing that I do every single day. Um, and I find that if you're spending a lot of time doing kind of handwork, then you're thinking a lot about your decisions and you're making good decisions in your life because you're thinking, you're spending a lot of time with yourself and you can't really hide from yourself when you're doing that kind of work. Um, so that's the one kind of constant thing. Um, otherwise, this time of year, there's a lot of foraging and tending the garden and making dyes that way. Um, other parts of the year, it could be more um, 
like using the fabric tie dye. I kind of work on accumulating a lot of fabrics during the summer and then I use them all kind of in the winter and the fall. So it's definitely a seasonal, a seasonal change for sure. I'm lucky that I get to be a full-time artist. So I don't, I don't have a necessarily the most typical day in the world. Um, but I have found that having a couple of like, you know, um, columns of, 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 you know, routine and pattern were really helpful for me in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it always comes back to hand stitching in some way. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you always do something with what you're hand stitching or is it sometimes just about the process? Um, oftentimes it's just about the process and it's about, um, it's a great way of playing with color because you can, you can play with, you know, the fabric color, thread color, multiple thread colors. So it's a great way of experimenting with, with natural palettes that way. Um, and it's just really satisfying. You can make something really small and then and you're done, you know, it's a little swatch and you don't have to worry about, you know, making it into a huge wall hanging or like a quilt. You can just put it on a tabletop. It's like a little doily or you can just put it in a drawer. You can just do whatever you want to do with it. And I like nope, that. Like no that, pressure. That. Yeah, exactly. I like that flexibility of that for sure. Yeah. yeah. Making smaller projects is some of my favorite things to do just because you can kind of experiment and play and you don't feel like this extreme pressure to like mm -hmm. always finish this bed size quilt. I find, so. I find you can also do like more difficult things or, or more complex things because like if you're making a really complex um, like quilt block, if you have to make us like two of them or four of them, it's easier than making, you know, a king size version of that. And so you can, you can do kind of fun things without getting too bogged down in the repetition of making those things. Yeah, and it eliminates boredom too. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so, well, I'd like to wrap up here with just some, we call them our rapid fire questions. Okay. So whatever <laughs> just comes to mind as I, as I roll off these questions to you. So okay. what is your favorite material that you like to forage with that just creates the most stunning colors? Um, I really like um, sumac and if people look up sumac, they'll, they're, they're, there's probably some kind of sumac growing in their environment. There's many different kinds of it. And I like sumac because you can use the entire plant. You can use the leaves, the berries, the bark, the whole thing. And I love being able to use, if I forge something, I don't want to throw any of it away because I've, I've taken the trouble of cutting it down or, or foraging it or gathering it. And I want to use the whole thing if possible. And so that's why I love sumac. And I also love goldenrod. Because most, most people know what goldenrod is because they see it alongside the road pretty regularly. And it's a fun thing to point out to people and say, you can make color with that if you want to. So mm -hmm. Those are probably my two favorites. And what is the what is the color of goldenrod when it oh, dyes the fabric? It's a, like a golden yellow color. Okay. I could have guessed. <laughs> sumac can be anything from like a pinkish red to a gray to like a purplish color, depending on how you treat it and what part of the plant that you use. Oh, wow. Fascinating. I'm going to have to Google both of those plants when I get off this call. <laughs> Okay, number two, share a happy surprise or perhaps even a failure from hand dyeing. Um, so uh, a lot of natural dyes are pH sensitive, uh, meaning if you shift the pH of the dye, you can get different colors. So that could be um, adding like a little bit of like rust water or vinegar or different things of making it, of changing them. And so you can shift to like a, a marigold gold to like a khaki green, but you put like some iron in it. So that's kind of fun. You can kind of play with things that way. And so that's one of my favorite things to do. It's just to um, to layer up different things and see kind of how things pull through and how things shift and change. Um, that's probably one of my happiest like accident things, but there also are a lot of mistakes for sure. A lot of mistakes too, um, from just like not properly treating things beforehand or leaving them out like, you know, in the sun too early and things fading. There's all kinds of, there's definitely a lot of mistakes to be had for sure. <laughs> that's Sounds part like of the too. <laughs> Sounds like an interesting balance of like creativity and science. <laughs> yeah, I always tell people I feel like I'm like part like alchemist, mad scientist, and part like kindergartner. You know, just sort of like 
experimenting, but also there's like a little bit of science in the background, but a lot of it's just kind of winging it and seeing what happens too. And that's the fun part of it. Yeah, sounds great. Um, do you have a favorite workshop that you like to teach? Uh, I do like teaching indigo. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there's that sort of like green to blue shift that happens in, before your eyes. And so um, it's fun to watch people get um, kind of giddy about dying. It's fun to watch that happen. <laughs> yeah, those reactions are probably priceless. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So what's a current project that you're working on? Maybe something that you're sewing or something that you're currently dying? Uh, we, we mentioned earlier about small projects and I'm working on a series of just two block quilts. So small, um, they're like, like 30 by like 16 or so. So they're kind of small rectangular quilts and um, I'm doing it to explore different blocks and like traditional blocks, but um, slight riffs on them. So like turning them slightly or, or changing some aspect of the block. And um, we were mentioning earlier, I, I like the small work because you can really experiment and you can finish it and then you can walk away from it and you're done with it. And, you, and it's a good way of experimenting and trying out things on a small, a small scale. Sounds great. Okay. And so the last one, it sounds like you're really connected there to your community there in Greensboro. What is something that you love most about working and living in that community? Um, I think that a lot of people, um, I think, think that you have to be in like a major kind of metropolis or a major city to be a part of, of like the art world. And I, that's just not, it's not true. I think there's a lot of freedom of being in a more rural environment. There's, um, uh, the cost of living is lower, so you're able to have bigger studio space, more things to work on, more things to work with, which is really great. And people are just really supportive. They, um, the, the threshold for weirdness is pretty high in the small town that I live in. So people are really um, always kind of interested in what I'm doing and they want to help. So if they know that I collect sumac, they'll call me when there's blooms on their property or they'll call me when their black walnuts co or come out. So it's, it's a fun network you build of people uh, really wanting to support you and wanting to make it as easy as possible for you to be here. Sounds like a great collaborative community. Yeah, it's, it definitely is a collaboration for sure. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could um, mail you some of the walnuts that happen in my backyard. There, oh, yeah. I'm not a fan of them. If I could just mail them and ship them all to you, that would be great. <laughs> okay, people, all you have to do is put them in like a big container and cover them with water and let them sit for like a month or so. And you come back to it, it'll be a sort of like crazy brown liquid. And then you have black walnut dye. Wow. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I won't resent them as much as I do now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they do stain the cement, the yard, your hands, all that stuff for sure. But they're yeah. a great dye too. <laughs> Good to know. I have a new appreciation for them now. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was saying. You can, you can like, you start looking at things, uh, things you may think are annoying or like a weed. You're like, Oh, actually it's a beautiful thing that does this for me now. It's a great way of shifting your, your view for sure. Yeah. It might be baby steps for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah slowly, we'll coax you into the dying world for yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> little, little by little. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for our conversation today. I really enjoyed talking with you and I'm sure our listeners have picked up so much information from you and um, I just want to encourage them to um, connect with you online. What is the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so on Instagram, my name is just Aaron Sanders Head, just my full name. And I post pretty frequently on there. You'll see... Um, whatever dye experiments I'm working on, whatever quotes I'm working on, you can see um, kind of a live feed on there. And then um, my website is just aaronsandershead.com. And I have a newsletter that comes out monthly where you can look at um, upcoming workshops with online in person. So it's a good way of keeping, keeping up with those opportunities is my newsletter. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, it's Lindsay. Wow. I just loved that interview. Erin is such an inspiring maker and is really putting the most beautiful work out into the world. Erin is also featured in the August issue of American Patchwork and Quilting, which is on sale now. 
So if you don't already have the magazine, pick it up to read more from him and see some yummy photos of his work. We'll link to Aaron's website and social media in our show notes so that you can connect with him more. Thanks for tuning in this week. Everyone stay cool and stay creative. and thanks for listening. Keep in touch. American Patchwork and Quilting is on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at All People Quilt. Email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast. And if you love the American Patchwork and Quilting podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free. And don't forget to rate and review the show. It helps other quilters find us. Have a creative week.